According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Isaiah for now, this week and next. How about that? Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. I may need about six hours to cover this chapter, so we'll see how that goes. It says in verse 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. You ever heard of that? Matter of fact, uh, we wouldn't have Second Peter chapter 3 if it was not for Isaiah 55. And all of what we're looking forward to, because it is according to his promise, according to Isaiah 55 verse 17, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so there is a foundation that is laid here 700 years before the birth of Christ that is used by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and that we are making application now 2,000 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, it is a message of great power. It's a message of great hope. And it is one to dwell upon, to meditate upon, particularly if you are not pleased with the direction this world is going. All right? Because this world is passing away, and along with it, it's lusts. But we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a blessing. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble our hearts, quiet our hearts, under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you for the message of Isaiah and the message of Jeremiah. I thank you that you are equipping this lampstand with both the uh, message of comfort and hope and then the weeping message of sorrow as we watch our nation destroyed. And yet, Father, we know you are faithful. We know that you love us. We know that we are called according to your purpose. And we know that all things work together for good. We pray for this day, for the word as it goes forth, that we would be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, 65 and 66 are a unit. We'll cover chapter 55 this week and chapter 66 next week. Understand that there had been a fourfold prayer on the part of Isaiah uh, prior to this, where he had several confessions to make, several observations to make. Isaiah made those prophetically, but Israel will make those very same observations in the tribulation. The Jewish people must be humbled or Christ isn't coming back. And Israel in the tribulation has to call upon the Messiah they crucified to return a second time and be their Messiah, the Messiah of their deliverance. And so as we worked our way through these recent chapters in chapter 62 and chapter 63, um, really 63 and 64, the, the prayer items that, that Isaiah was making, the answer comes now in chapter 65, and it's going to continue in chapter 66. Yahweh himself now speaking, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, or here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. 
a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than thou. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. Both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. All right. We've got some bosom lessons coming up in this chapter and next week. Um, so stay tuned. But here is what begins the message of wrath. This is not a happy message. They are going to become under discipline as a consequence of their idolatry, as a consequence of their rebellion. Anyone that tries to put the church in the tribulation has to explain to me how the church is going to pay the consequences of Israel's rebellion. All right, this is Israel's discipline for Israel's rebellion and the things that we have described here. The first segment of the Lord's reply is a statement that he will no longer operate as he did in the past. He says, that's done. <laughs> Here's what I used to do. I did permit myself to be sought by those who did not ask me. When he sent his son in the first advent, they were not looking for, their, for the, the Christ. There was a handful, there was a remnant, there were a few on positive volition, but most of Israel was looking for a political deliverance. The, uh, the, the different groups, the different parties involved, the uh, zealots and whatnot, the Pharisees, they wanted Rome gone. They were all too happy to have Rome gone. But they did not want the kingdom of righteousness that, that came with it. They were, they were a brood of vipers that had no interest in the repentance message that John the Baptist was preaching or that Jesus was preaching. And so we have a description here of what God did. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek. All right. And so when we talk about ask and seek and knock, he was faithful even though Israel was not asking, seeking, or knocking. That was in first advent. That will not be the case in the tribulation. They will have to ask and seek and knock. Understand Israel in their Pharisaic arrogance. Just read the Gospels. Read the conflict Jesus encountered with those arrogant Pharisees. The attitude that permeated Judaism in his day. Israel in their Pharisaic arrogance never asked. They never sought. They never knocked. All right? When Jesus gives that message about asking ye shall receive, seeking ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Who was he speaking to? Wasn't the church. <laughs> All right. Matthew 7 is the Sermon on the Mount towards Israel. Specifically, it is the constitution of the millennial kingdom. He was urging Israel to do something that they've not been doing up till now. And whereas God has permitted himself to be found by those who did not seek me, to be uh, uh, sought by those who did not ask for me, and all the things that he, in grace, <laughs> did on their behalf at first advent, he won't do that in the tribulation. They will not be saved from Antichrist until they ask and seek and knock. They will have to call upon the name of the Lord so as to be saved. 
And until they do, they will not be saved. Israel has no future other than the deliverance by their Messiah, the one that they must ask and seek and knock for. So Israel and their Pharisaic arrogance, they never asked, they never sought, they never knocked. He came to them anyway. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So the graciousness of God when He came in First Advent, when He came uh, as a humble, and when He came emptying Himself of His glory, He was born of a manger, and he, he died on the cross for our sins. All of that was grace, 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 grace. And He said, It'll be different at Second Advent. You will have to ask. You will have to seek. You will have to knock. You will have to call upon the Lord whom you pierced. From now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was a promise. So Israel in the tribulation will have to. And we'll see it. Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8 in the, in the gospel record. We see it at the end of this chapter, verses 24 and 25. Look how this chapter closes. It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. Now they will call, and that's how rapidly he's going to answer. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. All it takes is that first word of confession. We teach the doctrine of confession. We teach about the, the, the necessity to agree with the Lord and to confess and to be restored to fellowship. That's what he's waiting for. While you're in darkness, he's not hearing your prayers. But when you are repentant, when your heart is adjusted, and when you are confessing, that very first word, he knows what the rest of that prayer is all about. <laughs> he knows where your heart is. That very first word, <clears throat> he's already moving. He's already headed your direction. Think of the father of the prodigal that saw the son approaching at the, the boundary of his property and ran out to meet him at the boundary of his property. He slew the fatted calf. That's our Father waiting for us to confess. That's our Father waiting for Israel to confess <clears throat> so that Israel can enter, the Jewish people by faith can enter into the millennial kingdom. And so while the word is still on your lips, before they call, while they're still speaking, I will hear, the wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion and the, and the, will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Okay? They get to enter into the millennium as soon as they ask and seek and knock when they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's a beautiful picture uh, for what Israel has to look forward to. Okay? Don't put your lions and lambs together today. That's not a, a church age application. If you put your lambs in with your lions, uh, yeah, you won't have lambs in the morning. The lions will be very well fed and thankful. So this is what we have, all right? Now, this is the real application of ask, seek, and knock. We, I know we, we, we use it a lot in our church age. We use the principle a lot in our own Christian way of life. Maybe we need to pay more attention to the fact that when we do that, we're actually doing a secondary application as it applies to the privilege we have in the body of Christ. Of course, we can ask. We're in Christ. Of course, we can seek. We're in Christ. Of course, we can knock. We're in Christ. But better than that, Christ himself is knocking when we understand the fellowship that we have in Romans in Revelation chapter 3. So really, Matthew is, is not a church passage. Matthew is a Sermon on the Mount, is for Israel to apply in the coming tribulation. We also know that the tribulation is recompense. It is payback. And it is payback of the dearest sort, that it is in their bosom. All right, that's a 
expression. We have it in Proverbs. We have it in other places that speaks of the, the, uh, the tenderest place. It speaks of, uh, for example, in Proverbs it says, can a man um, put a, a torch in his shirt and not be burned? All right, and he says, so it is with a man that commits adultery with another man's wife. He is a man that is lacking sense, all right, that you, you will be burned. It's like, you know, stick a, stick a burning torch down your shirt, and what do you think is going to happen? You're, you're going to be burned, <laughs> all right, in a very sensitive area there in your body. And so judgment is coming into their bosom. And I find it interesting that the son, who is in the bosom of the father, came to explain the Father that they may not have to receive this bosom judgment. There's just imagery involved in this that if we were going to teach Isaiah 65 verse by verse, we would stop and teach for several classes a whole concept of bosom application. Why did John recline on Jesus' bosom? Why, why is the, the principle there? See? Alright. Well, we don't have time for that. <laughs> but... Stay tuned because the Lord may put us in a, in a study like that at some point of time. The tribulation of Israel is recompense. It is payback. It is judgment that they have deserved and really less than what they deserve. But it is consequences for their rebellion and their idolatry. It is recompense for that generation's iniquities as well as the measured work of their father's iniquities. God is judicially imputing compound discipline upon the tribulational generation. All right, and he's absolutely free and just to do that. Uh, it's not the normal procedure. Generally speaking, on a normal basis, the, the sins of the father are paid for by the father. The children don't pay for the sins of the father. They may face consequences. There may be wrath to the third and the fourth generation. But the, the sins of the father belong to the father. The sins of the son belong to the son. If the son repents, the son is blessed. We have uh, generational accountability as it's taught in Ezekiel and in several other places. But here and in the first advent of Jesus Christ, when he said the, bl- the blood of righteous Abel, all the righteous blood of all mankind is going to be assigned to this generation. That's significant. And then it happens again in the tribulation. It happens again. More judgment, more compound discipline. And so some of these things uh, take a little bit of work to unfold. I'm not going to I don't want to spend a whole hour on judgment because we've got some fun stuff coming up with lions and lambs and people not getting old. And there's some great things here with the new heavens and the new earth we want to get to today. But uh, you might recall 35 weeks ago in chapter 30, and, and I'm sure everyone is just as up and current on chapter 30 as, as everybody else, um, and by the way, I recommend this. As soon as next week is over, we've got all 65 of these on the website, all 66 of these on the website. Go back to lesson one and listen to one a day for 66 days. I intend to. What, what, a, what a blessing that's going to be. All right. But in chapter 30, verses 8 through 11, uh, he tells Isaiah, he says, Go write it on a tablet before them and scribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. He instructed Isaiah to do that. And that's what God says he has right in front of his face. It's written in front of him. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to seers, stop seeing visions, and to prophets, stop prophesying what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, okay? Prophesy illusions. Just lie to us, okay? 
tell us, thus saith the Lord, everything's happy. Okay? Please preach to us a don't worry, be happy kind of song. Well, uh, as far as Isaiah says, as far as the Lord says, that's not a real prophet. A real prophet tells you the tough messages, whether you want to hear them or not. Those that are true and uh, different things there. Verse 15 of the same chapter. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. Don't use that in your street preaching today, but that's for Israel in receiving their king through the tribulation and entering into the uh, millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. Jesus will have the same lament. He laments over Jerusalem and he says, I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. They were negative Isaiah's day. They were negative in Jesus' day. They will finally be turned positive, but only after Antichrist and hell is unleashed against them. That's what it takes to humble these obstinate Jewish people. Uh, Shouldn't surprise us because Moses promised this was going to be the case in Deuteronomy 32. uh, Before Moses uh, died, he uh, had several prophecies, and uh, one of which was their rebellion, one of which was their dispersion and uh, the coming tribulation. Deuteronomy 32, and this is a longer section too, I won't read the whole thing, but in verses 34 through 43, is not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries. Vengeance is mine and retribution. This is God's business. You and I can't take vengeance for ourselves. We're not equipped to do that. We might try, and I know we want to on occasion, but we are not equipped to inflict any kind of vengeance. We ourselves are saved by the grace of God. Who are we? We don't have the absolute standard of righteousness to judge others. We stand before our judge, same as they do. But God is the judge. And this is stored up in his treasuries. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. And yet, they will call upon him and they will be saved. Believe it or not, they will be saved. But it's going to take tribulation. So when you go through all the way down through verse 43, you'll notice this. Um, There is a flashing sword in verse 41. Why does he keep it sharp? (laughs) He keeps it sharp because that's the business end of a sword. and He's getting ready to use it. My hand takes hold on justice. I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. See, he gives recompense to the house of the Lord to start with, and then it's recompense to the enemies of the house of the Lord. After he deals with the Jews, he's going to deal with the Gentiles who have been afflicting the Jews. And so uh, I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain, the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. If you ever want to do those studies, I recommend them because the uh, avenger is also the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. And the same one that's qualified to do the avenging is the only one that was qualified to do the redeeming. All right, and hallelujah for him. Well, the Lord picked up on this. So Isaiah is not all by himself. Isaiah is just preaching in the tradition of Moses. And so is Jesus, preaching in the tradition of Moses and Isaiah. 
And uh, Jesus stands and gives his Olivet Discourse as an Old Testament prophet, giving Israel the uh, gloomy message of what to look forward to in complete agreement with uh, Isaiah, in complete agreement with Moses. And in Matthew 23, verses uh, 29 through 39, you'll notice there's a whole lot of woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. You hoity-toity religious do-gooders, and you're worse than all the rest of them. And you think it counts because you've got this marvelous little uh, tomb of Isaiah over here. Well, who's the one that killed Isaiah? Who's the folks that cut Isaiah in half or sawn him in two? It was you guys, a bunch of religious do-gooders. And yet you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of innocent blood. Oh, yes, you would have. I know for a fact you would have because you're about to do something even worse. They crucified prophets, or they killed prophets. You're going to crucify the Christ. You're far worse than all those guys. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. This is what we're getting into. And I know I'm doing it very quickly this morning, but this is compound discipline. Taking wrath and compounding it like the compound interest of a bank or a loan shark or something. All right? Because the fathers have already been judged, but they're getting judged again through the compound judgment upon this generation. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And they boasted about it too. They said, give us Barabbas, crucify this fellow. They said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. They were mocking and taunting. You ever give the gospel to a guy that said, I want to go to hell. I don't like God anyway. Well, I tell you, sometimes it's frightening to just see the boldness of their satanic hatred. You're like, all right, sorry, I'm just giving you eternal life, that's all. Fill up then, you brood of vipers. Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now he's talking about the tribulational judgment here. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood ever shed on this earth, starting with the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, right? From Genesis to Second Chronicles. From Alpha to Omega. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And he laments, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. They were negative in Moses' day. They were negative in Isaiah's day. They were negative in Jesus' day. How many times could they have received this kingdom? Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. See, this isn't human volition thwarting the sovereignty of God. This is the sovereignty of God that so flexibly and graciously identifies with negative volition and wins anyway. What a grace plan. It brings about the church in between the first advent and the second advent. Great thing that God knows what he's doing, right? For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? 
Until you ask, seek, and knock. Until you fulfill what the prophet said. He's not coming back at second advent until Israel is on positive volition to the truth of the word of God. And they surrender. They, they call out to the Christ whom they crucified to come and to save them. What a day that's going to be. All right. Now, let's look at verses uh, 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order to not destroy all of them. You're looking at a cluster of grapes. And almost everything in that cluster looks nasty. Man. And you might be tempted to just chuck the entire thing. You're looking at a cluster. It doesn't say how big the cluster is, but it's a, it's, if I know Israel, it's a pretty big cluster. All right. And you're looking at this thing saying, this is useless, worthless. Then somebody else says, you know what? There's a good grape in there. There's a couple good grapes in there. There's a remnant of whatever. Ten righteous could have saved Sodom. All right. God confessed to that. And so... Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. See, God knows who is his. Not all Israel is Israel. And the Lord's wrath will make this clear as he preserves a remnant from the cluster. He preserves a remnant from the cluster. I'm not going to turn there because we had a Roman series not that long ago, but in Romans 9, that principle was presented. Not all Israel is Israel. All Israel will be saved, but not all Israel is Israel. Okay? True, regenerate Israel that wrestles with God and with man. In other words, as Jacob is renamed Israel, that's Israel. Regenerate Israel wrestles with God and with man. Unregenerate Israel just wrestles with man. And unregenerate Israel is not getting into the millennial kingdom. This is the bad cluster that's going to be burned. But the good grapes... You know, if he can get Lot out of Sodom, can he rescue? He can get Noah out of the flood. Is God able to rescue? Of course God's able to rescue. But he can grab eight good grapes out of a monster cluster of, of worthless worthless um, cluster that we see here. And he can make new wine with it. So I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it. And my servants, plural, will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks. And the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, forget about it, all right? Who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune. Yeah, who do you know that's serving the God of luck? Who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny flip side there you got fortune on the one hand destiny on the other hand you got luck that's either good or bad and then you got fate that does what it wants to do and you can't stop it anyway that's the pathetic existence most people you know live in he says i will destine you for the sword all of you will bow down to the slaughter because i called but you did not answer i spoke but you did not hear you did evil in my sight and chose that in which i did not delight Behold, my servants, we're going to get down to verse 16 here, will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. See, now he's separating out these good grapes and the great things they have in front of them. 
and this destroyed cluster and the nightmare they've got to look forward to ending in their own death and destruction. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. You will cry out with a heavy heart. You will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. You know, when you leave a name like that, what kind of name did Benedict Arnold leave? You know, for 200 years now and more, you call somebody a Benedict Arnold, you just call him a, a, a turncoat, a traitor. Yeah, you know, call somebody a Judas. What have you just done? He's a, he's a traitor. So, I mean, these, they're, what are they leaving for themselves? A name that is just spoken of in shame. What name are they leaving? My servants, they're getting a new name. <laughs> See, they got a new name written down in glory. My servants will be called by another name. Blessed is he who is blessed. I'm sorry, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight. You know, there's, uh, there's travail that's about to happen. And it's described, Scripture describes this in this way, that when a woman has a baby, what happens? It hurts until the baby's here. And then she forgets about the hurt because of the joy of the baby that has come. Now, I've read that, I've seen that, I've never experienced that, but I understand the concept. The very same principle will be applying to the nation of Israel. Because tribulation for Israel is birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs, followed by complete birth pangs, followed by a baby, and that baby is the kingdom. All right? And when that kingdom comes, they're not going to remember the birth pangs. They're not going to remember the... Uh, the full-on labor pains. In fact, it's going to come so fast, their, their, their heads are going to spin. They're going to say, wow, we were barely even in labor. Has that ever happened before? Has, has a baby ever been born when, man, the labor just started? Boom, it's over. How fast is that? Well, it won't literally be that fast, but it's going to seem that fast to them because of the joy, the eternal joy they have in the millennial kingdom. And when they look back, they won't even remember they won't even remember antichrist or tribulation or all the hardship or all the stuff that's not even going to cross their mind because they're going to be face to face with jesus christ in the millennial kingdom all right former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight because god chooses not to remember them israel won't remember them so not all israel is israel the lord's wrath will make this clear as he preserves a remnant from out of the cluster. And when I, I love this, it's remarkable. Again, we can't take time to do it, but work your way through and spot your singulars and your plurals. Understand that if those servants have any kind of blessing, it comes because the servant did his job as unto the Father. Because the servant, Isaiah has given us message after message after message about the suffering servant about the faithful servant, about the beloved servant, about our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because the servant did what he did, the servants, plural, will receive what they receive in the blessings of the servant. Likewise, the offspring. That's a little tougher because we use offsprings. We don't use offsprings. We use offspring to speak of a plural and a singular. But the offspring, plural, in this text, my, you have my servants, my servants, my offspring, 
plural, and their children. My chosen ones, plural. Why will my chosen ones, plural, be blessed? Because the chosen one accomplished the victory at the cross. And so the chosen ones reap the benefit. And so the servant, offspring, heir, chosen one will rescue the servant's, offspring, heir's, chosen ones. And it is a glorious tandem. I love this tandem. It's a, it's a, it's a good study, particularly for the teen class right now, because we're going through Daniel chapter 7 and the, the Ancient of Days judgment that takes place there whereby God the Father rules against Antichrist and in favor of Jesus Christ, and where the Ancient of Days not only rules in favor of, of the Holy One, but He rules in favor of the saints of the Holy One. And there's a tandem between the singular and the plural there as well. When you look at Daniel 7 in verses 13 and 14 and 22 and 27. Oh my, do I get lost in this too? Just, just quickly, how do I not turn to Daniel? Is there a book of the Bible I've taught more often than Daniel? I don't know. Daniel, chapter 7. In case you're all worried about Antichrist winning, guess what? He loses. Okay? Daniel seven thirteen. I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. This is Jesus Christ in victory as he ascends to the Father having been victorious at the cross of Calvary. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Guess what? Antichrist will be destroyed. His kingdom will pass away. Jesus Christ brings him to an end by his appearance and by his coming. But also, down to verse 22, see, there's there's war that goes on, and Antichrist, this horn, is trying to murder the saints. This horn was uttering great boasts, and in verse 21, I kept looking, that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Antichrist is executing believers left and right in the tribulation. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Well, wait a minute. Who gets the kingdom? Is it the Son of Man that gets the kingdom? Or is it the saints that take the kingdom? See, it's both. It's a tandem. The only reason the saints can take the kingdom is because the Holy One. is because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, was faithful. And so it's a tandem between the servant and the servants, the offspring singular and the offspring plural, the heir and the heirs, the chosen one and the chosen ones. It's a beautiful concept. Down to verse 27. The sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so there we have both the singular and the plural. In verse 27. Now God knows how to rescue those. And there's a vivid contrast between the the estate of the righteous and the estate of the wicked. The estate of the righteous, the estate of the unrighteous. You know, you're going to be hungry. They're going to feast. You're going to be thirsty. They're going to drink. They're drinking new wine. My servants will shout joyfully. 
you're going to cry out with a heavy heart. You will wail with a broken spirit. See, believers are going to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers are going to be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you want another vivid picture, go to Luke 16 and read Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was on Abraham's bosom side being comforted. The rich man was over there in Tartarus being tortured, suffering. And there was no crossover back and forth. If I had time, I'd go there as well. I'm just running out. Because I want to get to verse 17 and following. So let's, let's do this. Again, how does verse 16 end? He says, uh, uh, Former troubles are forgotten. They are hidden from my sight. And we have a foreshadowing of the great things to come. When the new heavens and new earth arrive, there will be a global forgetfulness. I think the millennial forgetfulness of Israel is a foreshadowing of that. But there will be a global universal forgetfulness when the new heavens and the new earth arise. And so the idea of former troubles forgotten, hidden from sight, introduces this theme. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. All right, now we've got to take some time and work our way through this because there's actually a shift here. We have the new heavens and the new earth introduced, but it's actually the millennium that's being described. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's the children of Jerusalem, it's the millennial children that have to be prepared for those new heavens and new earth. All right? And this is uh, something else that we have to deal with as well. Verses 17 through 25. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? You can write that down if you want. You probably don't have to. But we're not, we're not citing 2 Peter 3. We're citing Isaiah 65. 17 through 25. We are looking for new heavens and new earth. And what's going to bring it about? Are we going to bring it about? Is it our human effort that makes it happen? Can I visualize world peace and make it happen? How do I bring in the kingdom? See, post millennialists are trying to bring in the kingdom and hand it to Jesus. They think that Jesus can't come until they manufacture the kingdom. And we've already seen what's keeping Jesus from coming back. It's Israel repenting and calling upon their Messiah. No. Premillennial return of Christ. Christ returns. Christ brings the kingdom. We're not going to bring it before him. Prophetic vision often employs a mountain peak perspective that fails to see the valleys between. If you ever read Clarence Larkin, this couldn't be clear, and he draws it out, he explains it. So he's talking about new heavens and new earth. He doesn't see the valley between. And then he starts to see and describe things that really belong in the valley between. They don't belong on the mountain peak. And we're fine with that. 
We're fine with that because later messages are going to sort out what this message is dealing with. It doesn't mean this message is wrong. It just means that this message is limited in how it is discussing the future things. That's always the nature of looking forward. Right here, right now, I'm looking forward and, and uh, I, I can't see any shoes except for the first shoes right here up front. But the rest of you that are in row two and three and further back, I can't see your shoes. Why? They're blocked by stuff in between. I could walk down the center aisle and start scoping out some shoes. Once I get in between the two aisles, I'll have a better perspective, won't I? And that's where we are now in the church. We're in between rows. We're in between First Advent and Second Advent. We can look back to what Christ did on the cross. We can look forward to what He's going to do at Second Advent. And we're, we have that great perspective in between. Isaiah didn't have that. Isaiah was looking forward. And he didn't see any shoes. Alright? He saw the cross. He saw the kingdom. Didn't see a gap in between. That's why Jesus taught Isaiah 61 the way He taught Isaiah 61 in Luke 4. Alright? That's why He's teaching both Millennium and fullness of time right here in this chapter. In Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, you've got both the millennium and the fullness of time in the same, cha- in the same two chapters. When we get to Revelation, we've got a lot better. Revelation 20, we've got the millennium, and in 21 and 22, we have the fullness of time after the millennium in the new heavens and on the new earth. Thankfully, we've got Revelation to further expand upon Isaiah. All right? And so the mountain peak perspective, the mountain peak perspective, and I think I can uh, make this larger. Can't I? Here we go. And if you have the Clarence Larkin charts, maybe you've seen this one, the mountain peaks of prophecy. And, uh, oh, you know what else? I think I also... Made myself uh, here. I did, didn't I? Nope, that's a different one. I was going to make myself an image there, but anyway, here is mountain peaks. And you notice as the prophets were looking across and they saw Calvary, they saw the cross, but they didn't see the church in between. They saw first advent, they saw second advent. Church in between was not seen. It was a mystery in the Old Testament times. Likewise, the rapture of the church and the second advent, Antichrist in between, mountain peaks. They could see a, a temple. They could see new heavens and a new earth. But most of the details of the millennium was down in a valley. They didn't see a whole lot of it. And the parts that they did see were not entirely clear whether they belonged in that valley or whether they belonged up on the mountain slopes. For example, how come these people are dying at the age of 100? Why are they dying ever? Okay, In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more death. Nobody ever dies. But here in this chapter, they're dying at 100. And that's considered young. Alright? And so these are details that we pick up on and we start to reconcile Revelation with Isaiah and we start to put them together into a diagram and a schematic such as what Larkin did here. We find the mountain peaks and we find the valleys and we find things that are sometimes combined in the Old Testament when you're just looking forward and you can't see the shoes. Okay? Thankfully, that's not our perspective in the church with our New Testament. Alright? By the way, we've already dealt with this because we've already dealt with Isaiah 61. 
when Jesus stopped reading in the middle of verse 2. <laughs> he read a third of verse 2 and then stopped. And he didn't read the, the second third or the third third of verse 2. He just stopped his reading, rolled up the scroll, sat down and said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? And if you don't remember that, you must have been sleeping as we taught Isaiah 61. Okay? Now, very quickly, just understand, a lot of times, first advent and second advent visions are combined. Boom. They're in the same prophecy. You don't even realize they're two different things. As we had in Isaiah 61 and as was explained to us in Luke 4. And, and that's not unique. That's a lot of places. Daniel, Ezekiel, a lot of prophets. First Advent, Second Advent are all lumped together in the same message. Also, Day of the Lord visions. Oh my goodness. When you read Day of the Lord in Joel or wherever, read Day of the Lord, sometimes you don't know. Is this tribulation? Is this millennium? Is this new heavens, new earth? And the answer is yes. It is the Day of the Lord. It is the Day of His wrath. It is the Day of the first wrath of God the Almighty. And it is the day of the Lord. A day is only as a thousand years. That's why the millennium is a thousand years long. It's just a day. Tribulation, millennium, and then we cross into the new heavens and the new earth. The day of God. Okay? So day of the Lord visions often combine tribulation, second advent, millennial details. You understand why let my people think is a good motto for Ravi Zacharias? This takes work. You've got to study to show yourself approved. You've got to combine... Look at all those prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah. They all talk the day of the Lord. Are they talking tribulation or millennium or new heavens, new earth? Yes. They're talking about what Israel has when God comes in the flesh and deals with them in His wrath. Even the destruction of the present heavens and earth, Peter calls it the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3.10. Covenant glory visions for Israel spans both the millennium and the fullness of time. Covenant glory visions for Israel spans both the millennium on this earth and the fullness of time on the new earth. Okay? Covenant glory visions for Israel. When, when the prophets are speaking about, you know, glory, glory, the, the light is, is shining and all this, the, the, the glory covenant blessings, are they millennial? Or are they fullness of time? They're actually both combined together without a distinction, without a clue that there's going to even be a millennium. Abraham didn't know there was going to be a millennium. David didn't know there was going to be a millennium. So covenant glory visions for Israel. That's what we have here in Isaiah 65 and 66. It is a covenant glory vision for Israel. And it spans both the millennium on this earth and then, of course, the fullness of times in the new heavens and new earth. All right. By the way, when Abraham was given his promises, was he given eternal promises or millennial promises? Eternal. Abrahamic covenant is eternal. The Davidic covenant isn't millennial, it's eternal. Your son will sit on your throne for a thousand years. No, your son will sit on your throne forever. Every covenant promise of the unconditional variety, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, New, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, point to an unconditional covenant that is covenant blessings for Israel. They are eternal covenant blessings for Israel. They cannot expire at the end of a thousand years. 
God's not done blessing Israel at the end of the millennium when he destroys this heaven and this earth and brings about the new heavens and the new earth. He's just getting started. Eternal promises are eternal. They're going to last for a thousand generations and eternally beyond in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we're looking at this in Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, here's a scripture reference you've never seen before. Revelation, join me if you would, in Revelation 20, and I want to look at verse 6 and a half. Revelation 20, all right, join me, Revelation chapter 20, and let's look at verse 6 and a half. All right, you say, my pastor has lost his mind. He was always kind of silly anyway, but this is kind of over the line. What is... What is verse 6 and a half? Well, it's that little white space in between verse 6 and verse 7. Right? I assume your letters there are black and the white space is white. Okay? Most pages get printed like that. So in between verse 6 and verse 7, okay, you might even have a little pericope heading in there. Satan freed, comma, doomed. All right, whatever. If you have a pericope heading in there, that's fine. Cross it off. But in between... Verse 6 and verse 7 is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I love doing this. I do this in Kiev all the time. I do this with the students and they love this. This is great. You know, uh, in verse 2, you've got a thousand years. You know, the term thousand years doesn't show up in the Old Testament. The promise to Abraham, the promise to David, the promise to the new covenant. Never is any promise in the Old Testament for a thousand years. It doesn't show up anywhere. But it shows up here six times. Seven times. All right? Six times. So look with me, because uh, Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. That sounds fun. And then he's thrown in the abyss and it's sealed, so he won't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. Do you see thousand years in verse 2, thousand years in verse 3? Put your finger there. Are you with me here? And then verse 4, they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. There's a thousand years in verse 4. Wow, that's the third time I got mentioned. This must be a big deal. And then the rest of the dead, verse 5, they don't come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay, there's, it's mentioned again. It's the fourth time it's mentioned. This has got to be a great big deal. In verse 6, uh, they will come to, to uh, life and they will uh, reign with God and Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years in verse 6. Wow! It was mentioned in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6. I can't wait. This has got to be a big deal. And then in verse 7, the thousand years are over. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. And Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I was getting my hopes up here. This, this, this was supposed to be a great big deal. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. I can't wait to see what happens here in this marvelous millennium. And it's over. Wow. When I get to verse 7, it's over. All right? The millennium is not the big deal we used to think it was. The big deal is after the millennium. The big deal is I saw new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. Ah, new heavens and a new earth. Okay. See, and even before that, when the great white throne gets established, uh, heaven and earth flee away 
In chapter 20 and verse 11, I saw a great white throne, him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This universe is gone as the great white throne is convened. All the elements are consumed in great heat, we're told. 2 Peter chapter 3. There's no more matter in the universe. It's all converted to heat and light energy. Which is fine for us because we're beings of light by then, but too bad for those other folks that aren't beings of light by then, right? What happens to them? Well, they stand at the great white throne and they get cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. And then, new heavens and new earth in chapter 21. So, these heavens and earth are fleeing away before the great white throne and then the new heavens and new earth after the great white throne. And that's a big deal. That's chapter 21. That's chapter 22. That's two full chapters of the new heavens and the new earth. That's not in between verse 6 and verse 7 in chapter 20. I'm telling you, the millennium is not a big deal, but the new heavens and new earth are. Because there's no more death, no more crying, no more pain. These first things have passed away. The millennium? The millennium is a provisional government. The millennium is the aftermath of the conquest jesus conquers this world and he rules a conquered earth and there will still be death in the millennium there is still death it's not until you get to chapter 21 that there's no more death verse 4 of chapter of revelation 21 4 he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will be no longer any death no longer any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away there's still death in the millennium there's still death in between verse 6 and verse 7 of Revelation chapter 20. And we're told, as I get back now to Isaiah 65, the youth will die at 100. Lifespans are going to be so increased, it's going to be like today when a child dies. Today when an infant dies. Here's a, here's a baby that's just, you know, just weeks old or months old. And, and, and we got an email the other day, we're praying for this family. They lost this infant. That's sad. Absolutely sad. Or a child... A teenager, that's sad. And we say, they had their whole life in front of them. Right? That humanly, we say that. In the millennium, that's what will be spoken of of somebody under 100 years of age. Because we're going to be restored to before the days of Noah. Humans are going to be living centuries. 800, 900 years. And so the one that dies at 100, like, oh, bummer. Man, they were so young. Well, they're going to miss out on, you know. Now that we say, they'll never see their children. Or they'll never see grandchildren, right? In the millennium, we're going to say, they're not going to see their great, 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 great grandchild. <laughs> Won't that be sad? Imagine with a thousand generations, and they're all still alive. Generation one is still with us when, gen- when generation 1,000 is birthed on the new earth. All right. And so other changes take place. There's animal peace that takes place. There's, there's amazing environmental adjustments that take place. So as I return back now, uh, we, we, we think about the youth that will die at 100. They will plant houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They are um, going to operate during the thousand years, uh, kind of like they did in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, they're going to be planting vineyards they're going to be building houses they're going to be living for the lord but they're still going to know that in a thousand years it's all gone 
The heavens and the earth are completely consumed. But they will still build houses and plant vineyards in the meantime because it's, it's a time to rejoice and celebrate with the Lord. They will not build and another inhabit, nor they will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. You're going to outlive anything you can manufacture. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. So infant mortality is a thing of the past. They will. Uh, they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord. Now, <coughs> pay attention to the expression offspring there because that becomes a big deal. Those We're talking about the offspring of those that survived the tribulation. Those that are born in the millennium. And understand that many of them don't get saved. Okay, A lot of them are going to rebel. But those who do get saved, those who become the offspring of the blessed ones, and those who live to the end of the thousand years, they get to become generation one on the new earth. All right? They get to become the procreators for the thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ in the new heavens and on the new earth. So, the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It's similar to how we study the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, the conquest generation. How long did it take (laughs) to rebel in the wilderness? All right, didn't take long at all. So when he brings them through tribulation and he puts them into the kingdom and they start having their first babies... How long does it take for the first unbelievers to reject the gospel even though their Savior is seated on the throne in Jerusalem? It won't take long. Doesn't that boggle your mind? (laughs) I mean, I I, I give the gospel, I get it rejected, people reject the gospel. With Jesus seated at the Father's right hand, imagine He's seated on this earth. He's in office. He's ruling from Jerusalem. The Savior who died on the cross to purchase your eternal life and you reject the gospel of our salvation. There will be many unbelievers at the end of the thousand year reign. The number is as the sand of the seashore that follow after Satan in the Gog Magog revolt. But those that are saved, the children of the blessed ones, the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, they become generation one and their descendants with them the population of the new heavens and the new earth for a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Have we ever had a thousand generations on this planet? No. Uh-uh. There's 60 from Adam to Jesus, so that gives you a clue. Okay. Maybe a third since then. Maybe, uh, maybe 30 since then. Anyway. I know I'm in the seventh generation from Adam Bolander that came from Germany to America. And that was in 1751. So, you know, do the math. We've not had a thousand generations on this planet. But we will on the next planet. On the new heavens and new earth. A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. So, um, tying this together then. Lifespans of the millennial reign will be restored to pre-flood conditions. Back to living centuries again. Melchizedek holds the record at nine... Or not Melchizedek. Thank you. 
holds the record at 969 years. Okay? Methuselah, you knew that, right? Not Methuselah. Methuselah. And I don't think that's an accident. There has never been a millennial human on the planet. And I don't think anyone that was alive in the tribulation will still be alive at the end of the, of the uh, millennium. Lifespans decreased on a curve. Are you familiar with that? They decreased on a curve from 900 years to 600 years to 400 years to 200 years. Abraham lived 175. And it finally got down to level with Moses at about 70 years. Okay, although Moses himself lived 120. But by that generation, they were living 70 years. It decreased on a curve after the flood. I believe it will increase likewise on a curve at the beginning of the millennium after the tribulation. Which means that the youth will die at 100. That may be applicable for generation 2 or 3. Or maybe by the, maybe by the fourth generation we'll have the first crop of humans that will have a lifespan to live to the, to the end. To reach the, the, the great white throne. Physically alive. Okay? If it increases on a curve like it decreased on a curve. Can't prove it, but it makes sense to me. Lifespans will be restored to pre-flood conditions. Also, amount of time, but Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14. But understand, death itself is not done away until the new heavens and the new earth. There's still death in the millennium. Jesus Christ himself executes unbelievers every morning. He wakes up every morning, and if there is an unbeliever that's in Jerusalem in the morning, Jesus Christ executes them. So if an unbeliever ever visits Jerusalem, they better get saved that day, or they better leave before the sun goes down. Because Jesus Christ executes rebellion every single morning in Jerusalem. There's death in the millennium. He rules with a rod of iron. It is not a pleasant reign. It is a, it is a, it is a occupying army that has established martial law for the day of the Lord. Animal instincts restored to pre-flood conditions. Yeah, read Genesis 9 and find out why uh, carnivores are carnivores. Okay, Find out why we eat meat now as well as vegetables. Find out that before the flood, animals and lambs were great together. And they will be again in the millennium. Okay? So I wasn't a problem putting lions and sheep on the ark. Okay? They weren't having issues prior to that. Lifespans restored. Animal instincts restored. In fact, the entire Noahic judgment is reversed for the millennial kingdom. Likewise, the entire Adamic judgment is abolished for the new heavens and the new earth. There's no longer any curse. There's no longer any sin. There's no longer any death. So when I um, put my Larkin chart up here, which one do I want to use? Let's use this one. Okay. And... uh, You know, is the millennium the big deal? Or is it the new heavens and the new earth that are the big deal? It's the new heavens and new earth. That's where righteousness dwells. That's where there's no more death. But understand, when we cross over into the millennium, the judgment of Noah is reversed. Lifespans are restored. Animal hostility is ended. Okay? The judgment of Noah is reversed. But when we cross into here, the curse of Adam is undone. There's no more curse. There's no more death. We're all sinless. Alright? As Adam and Eve were. Not just I'm not talking just sinners saved by grace and still, you know, 
sinners with a no good thing inside of you. I'm talking, that's gone. Redeemed, sinless. For you and I, we're glorified and eternal. But for these generations that cross into here, they are restored to the Adamic sinlessness and they procreate the thousand generations in the new earth. So think about how, backing up here to Adam and Eve, right? There was Adamic judgment there. And then in the flood, there was Noahic judgment there. See the order on that? Adamic judgment followed by Noahic judgment. Then it gets reversed as Noahic judgment is lifted and then as Adamic judgment is lifted. It's reversed in stages to mirror the stages it was applied. All right? Molly say she was coming back? Uh, I'm just going to keep preaching. All right. I'm going to have to end here. But the offspring of the millennial blessed ones, tuck this verse away. The offspring of millennial blessed ones, they're focused in Isaiah 65, 3, and they combine together with these other passages to show us the, the, the progenitors of the thousand generations. The sons of the blessed one. All right, well, I'm, I'm just out of time. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this class. I thank you for your truth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.